Well, good morning, fellas. So glad you're here with us today as we gather together and have a hot meal and study the Lord's Word together. Um, as you make it way to uh, your seats, I encourage you to go ahead and flip open your Bibles to, to John chapter 13. Friends, as we come to John 13, we're going to notice that a massive shift in the narrative takes place. You know, just a little bit of background from where we've been. You'll remember the first 12 chapters, uh, Jesus has largely been in the public eye. He's been preaching to the crowds, which have included Jews and Gentiles, but predominantly Jews. And uh, he's been giving them these signs, performing these miraculous signs, seven of them. And after those signs, he goes on a kind of a discourse. He's explaining to them what he had just done. And, uh, and, and that's what we've been seeing. And all of that he explains in these signs are pointing to him as the Son of God and the Messiah in whom everyone must believe in order to be saved. Right? So these first 12 chapters, which, by the way, cover the three years of Jesus' ministry, so John is like, he's writing at a neck break speed, right? Um, are basically public presentations of who Jesus is and his messiahship and lordship. But when we come to John chapter 13, all that changes. You know, Jesus is no longer in public. He's no longer with the crowds, speaking to the crowds. He is by himself with his friends, his beloved disciples, whom he calls his own. All right, he's not referring to the crowd when he says that. He's talking about his friends, the church. And he's speaking to them directly. And this is remarkable. This is for five chapters. Okay, so for five chapters, John slows down and he records in detail what Jesus says. Because these next five chapters cover about a handful of hours. The previous 12 chapters, three years, these next five chapters, a couple of hours. And they're what scholars call the upper room discourse. And what we have here prior to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, is this private, very tender, but extremely important meeting that Jesus has with his beloved disciples. And everything that he says in these next five chapters, this giant instruction that he gives, either leads to the cross or through the cross in order to prepare his friends who will one day bear the cross for his namesake. So Jesus, he is speaking to his disciples, which means, brothers, he is speaking directly to us too because we are his disciples. This is holy ground in which we are treading at this point, and it's vastly important. So with ears of faith, let us listen and hear God's word, starting in verse 1, John chapter 13. <clears throat> John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, Peter, who said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put out his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. Now, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that is John, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give some to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glory, glorify him at once. Little children, yet while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my brothers. 
I'm so grateful for the privilege you have given us, the gift of faith that you have given us that we might believe. And in believing, come here uh, ready to be informed, encouraged, and transformed by your life-giving word. And so, Father, we pray that you send your spirit down upon us for those things to take place for our good and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, This is such a heavy-duty chapter. And um, there's really not a great way, I don't think, to illustrate it. I'm sure there's brighter minds out there that could. So I think the best way for us to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 13 is to do our best to transport ourselves to that upper room. So in your, and I know all of us are not imaginative, but try to do your best to imagine that you're there that night, okay? <clears throat> so we're in that first century, and uh, we're climbing the steps to uh, this upper room in the town um, in Jerusalem. A house that's smack dab in the middle of Jerusalem, a town that is occupied by Rome, and it's night. And we find ourselves right next to that door. And we put our ears to the door, and we hear what's going on inside. There's 13 men there. One of them's quite famous. And they're having dinner. They're actually having a party. They're doing the Passover celebration. They're already eating. You can hear them talking. You can hear them laughing. You can hear them talking about their day. But all of a sudden, one of them opens that door, and he walks past you. He's probably sweating. He's focused. His head's looking down because he's about to begin his mission of betrayal. The other 12 are still in the room, but in just a couple of hours, they're about to make their journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, they're going to scatter, except for one of them, who will be taken by force to begin his horrid journey to the cross where he will be crucified. In fact, just a few hours from now, Jesus' lifeless body will be in a tomb. Okay? Jesus, of course, knows all this. John tells us in verse 1, Jesus knows that the hour had come. The hour was here. Jesus knew, but he also knew that these other guys didn't know that. So if you're Jesus, what what do you say to your best friends? What do you do for the people that you called to yourself just three years prior? Well, John tells us in verse 2, Jesus loved them to the end. Okay? Now, we could spend like six different sermons just parsing out that phrase, that Jesus loved them to the end, but we're not going to do that. So first, first off, that means something symbolically. Okay, first off, symbolically, what that means is is that Jesus never veered from his mission. Jesus made it to the cross. He died on the cross. He never veered from his mission. He loved his people then and now perfectly, and he will always love his people perfectly. Jesus loves us to the end. But on the surface, this is what it means. Jesus knows that he has come to the end of his earthly life, his ministry. And so in love, he turns to those that he loves and tells them everything they're going to need to know about the cross and what it means to bear the cross for his namesake after he leaves them. And what he says is just pure majesty. Some of y'all have heard of the pastor theologian Alexander McLaren, I love how he describes this passage. He says, Nowhere else do the blended lights of our Lord's divinity and human tenderness shine with such brightness. 
Nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page, even of the Bible, have so many eyes glistening with tears looked and had their tears dried. The immortal words which Christ spoke in the upper chamber are their highest self-revelation in speech. And Jesus said them, and had John record every single one of them, make no mistake, because he loves you and he loves me, and he wants to prepare us as his disciples in this world. So he says some remarkable things here. We're not going to cover all of them. I want to focus on three of them. First off, he talks about his mind, the mind of Christ. Secondly, the posture of discipleship. And thirdly, he gives some parting words to his new community and faith. Okay, so first off, the mind of Christ. We see this in verses 1 through 12. As we read, this whole narrative begins with Jesus tangibly demonstrating to his guys that he really does love them to the end. And in so doing, he shows them what it means to truly love one another. And so characteristically, he does this by giving a sign. It's not a miraculous sign as the previous seven, but it's a very important sign. He washes their feet. And after he washes their feet, he explains to them what he had done, just like he had done with the previous signs. And then after he gives the explanation, he asks them the question, do you understand what I just did for you? Do you understand the implications it has for me? And better yet, do you understand the implications it has for you? Now, we'll return to those questions in a moment. But let's just take a break and think about this sign. Make no mistake, when Jesus did what he did and washed his disciples' feet, you would have been able to hear a pin drop in that room. I mean, no one was talking at this point. They were probably shocked because remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Washing someone else's, washing your own feet would have been gross, but people did that. Washing someone else's feet back then, I mean, there was just no dignity in it. It was reserved for the lowest of slaves to wash another person's feet. It was just disgusting, okay? As they see Jesus do this, and on top of that, these guys were not ready to serve one another. And we know that implicitly because back then the custom, if you were going to do a dinner party, certainly Passover like they were, you would have had your feet washed. They have already started dinner and no one has yet washed their feet. Okay, so you can, I mean, they have it in their head like we're supposed to be doing this. But John, I saw where you walked earlier. Today. I'm not washing your feet, man. You do it yourself. That was their attitude, their posture. And beyond that, Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 22, it was around this time that all these jokers started arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest. It's in that context that Jesus stood up, took off his clothes, wrapped a servant's towel around his waist, and washed their feet. Now there's something significant going on here, more than showing these guys how to wash each other's feet. Okay, Scholars tell us what this is, it's a prophetic action. Jesus is living out, he's demonstrating a parable of the gospel. And I think the best way for us to understand this parable that Jesus is demonstrating, because he's trying to communicate something, and I got this from Sinclair Ferguson. He's that fabulous Scottish theologian pastor. He said the best way to understand what's happening here is to take what John says in chapter 13, verses 3 through 5 and verse 12, and put it right up next to Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, which we covered a little bit last week. 
But seriously, if you do that point by point, what Jesus demonstrates symbolically, Paul describes theologically. And Jesus wants to show us, I think, at least five things. And we're going to cover them briefly about his mind and what he's come here to do. So first off, he shows us and talks about his origin. We see this in verse 3 of chapter 13 and also verse 6a of chapter 2 in Philippians. Let me just read them really quickly. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God. Okay, so Jesus is conscious of the fact that he's come from the Father. Philippians 2, 6a, though he was in the form of God. Okay, Paul is describing the mind of Jesus. Paul tells us about what's going on inside the mind of Jesus. And John here tells us that Jesus Christ is conscious of his divinity, of where he's come from and where he's going. All right, so Jesus understands all of this and we, and we see evidence in verse 3, Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. He knew the Father had given everything into his hands. Look at verse 3. So that means that he knows that he's co-equal with the Father in dignity, glory, power, and authority. And what's more, he knows that he's going back to the Father, which is really cool. This is a neat caveat. Um, John uses the same verbiage here as he does all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1 the prologue. Okay, so there's this neat little connection here. So chapter one, verse one, that beautiful prologue that we studied at the very beginning, John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. In the Greek, with God is proston theon, which means face to face. So that tells us that Jesus, the son of God, was face to face with the father and this, this word of intimacy, they were together looking at each other, gazing at each other, loving each other. Of course, Jesus incarnates and comes to dwell with sinful people like us. But in verse 3 of John 13, what do we got? He knew that he was going back to God. And in the Greek, you have that same phrase, pros ton theon, face to face. Okay? So what's really cool, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 is the prologue of the second half of John's gospel, and it mirrors the prologue that we find in chapter 1, verse 1. All of that to say, in this text, we're to understand that Jesus is God and he knows it. He knows that he is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, in whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. It's astonishing, but it really makes what happens next amazing. His humiliation. Verse 4 through 5, Philippians 2, 6b through 8. Gospel of John. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and tying a towel around his waist, he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Philippians 2. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the astonishing part. Jesus knowing full well who he is, the Son of God, the Lord of the cosmos, with all of that power and all that majesty and might, what does he do? He humbles himself. And we really have to wrap our minds around that because it's not like me humbling myself before the elders of this session or we as husbands humbling ourselves to our better halves. This is the Son of God humbling himself before us. 
in dramatic, even cinematic fashion, Jesus is demonstrating here the wonder of his humility and grace and of the incarnation in general. I mean, just think about it. The one who parted the Red Sea is now pouring water into a servant's bowl. The creator who made all things, the one to whom every knee will one day bow, right here is bowing to his creatures. And make no mistake about it, he washed every single person's feet in that room, including Judas. I may have skipped him, but Jesus didn't. Love even your enemies. He says three years prior on the Sermon on the Mount, this is the humility of Christ our Savior. Now it's important to note, in his humiliation, Jesus never stopped being God. He never emptied himself of his divinity. He did, however, assume our human frailty. Okay, so God, or Jesus rather, did not abdicate his godness or his lordship over all things, which is very important to know, right? Because the marvel then of his humility and his grace is dependent on the fact that he is the son of God, word made flesh. It's him who is washing these people's dirty feet. That's what Jesus is doing in his humility. Now that leads us to the, really the big, the big chunk of this first point. It's his salvation. Okay. Now we see this, the salvation rather, that he provides in verses 6 through 10. We see this in the back and forth between Jesus and Peter. Um, just in summary, I love Peter because he's the, he's the biggest dummy of all of the people in that room. And I resemble that remark most of the time. I mean, I see myself in Peter. I think we're supposed to see ourselves in Peter. And we're also supposed to see, too, how patient and gracious Jesus is with Peter because Jesus is just as patient and gracious with us. It's remarkable, really. I mean, just notice the back and forth. Um, after Jesus bends down and he starts washing everybody's feet, the only thing that Peter can focus on is the fact that, well, his feet are dirty and the Messiah is staring him in the eye, bending down about to wash his feet. And so Peter responded the way that most of us probably would have responded, with a false humility that we're not entirely sure is false. I mean, you know what I mean? He basically says, Jesus, what are you doing? You're the Messiah. This is embarrassing me. <laughs> you should, John, get over here so Jesus doesn't have to do this. I mean, that's, that was his attitude. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Peter, I know that you don't understand what's going on. One day you will understand. And he's referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit who brings the truth of God to bear in the hearts and the minds of believers. One day you will understand this, Peter. But right now, let me just tell you this. If you, if you deny me this, if you deny this sign, you will reject the reality to which it points to. That's what Jesus says. If you, if you deny this, you reject the reality which it points to. What does that mean? Peter still doesn't know. Peter just, I mean, he was like the woman at the well. The woman at the well says, what is this water you have, Jesus? Give it to me. I mean, she spoke more than she knew, but that's what Peter does here. He says, well, if that's the case, Jesus, just wash me all over. Get this back part. I have trouble getting this. Wash me from head to toe if that's the truth. But then what does Jesus say in verse 10? This is, this is the, the key verse of this subsection. In verse 10, Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
I had trouble with that. I mean, that's very confusing to me. So I just scoured all the different scholars, and this is the best explanation. Essentially, what uh, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, listen, if you take a bath in the morning, you don't have to take another bath when you go to someone else's house for dinner. All you got to do is wash your feet because that's what's dirty. That's what Jesus is saying. So what does he mean? Certainly, this isn't a lesson of hygiene, although I'm sure they could have used it. Jesus is explaining the cross. He is, he, what Jesus is explaining in verse 10 to Peter, who will one day understand what Jesus was saying, is the once and for all cleansing that only Jesus can provide through the shedding of his blood. What Jesus is saying in verse 10, okay, when you are washed by my blood and justified by my grace, you will never need to be washed again. The only thing you're going to need is the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 10 means, okay? But let's just think about this. Religious people hate the idea of being told they need to be cleansed. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They were very religious people, but they did not think they needed to be cleansed. They thought they were good enough. They thought they could do this, that, or the other and be fine. And that's what religious people are like today. But what Jesus is saying here, guys, please listen to me, Jesus is saying. If you want your sins forgiven, if you want your guilt removed, and if you want to be made right with God your Father, you have to let me wash you. And when I wash you, I will remove those crimson stains and I will make you white as snow. That's what Jesus is saying. And I really do think that this is one of the surest signs that someone is converted in this life, that they quit fretting about what they need to do for God and they rest peaceably and confidently in what God has done for them. In verses 6 through 10, Jesus demonstrates the necessity and the assurance of the salvation that only he can provide. A little bit more quickly, verse 12, Jesus demonstrates his exaltation. Verse 12, Jesus puts on his outer garments again and resumed his place. Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. John uses a verb here called put on. That's how we translate it in English. And it echoes what Jesus had previously said about his own resurrection in John chapter 10, where he says, I laid down my life that I might take it up again. Jesus right here, and John is helping us see, is painting a vivid picture. And what he's telling us in this room, yes, I was humiliated. Yes, I was crucified. But I willingly laid down my life so that I could sovereignly take it back up again. And I do all of this for your sakes. And what we then believe by faith, gentlemen, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verse 11, one day everybody will know is true. And whether if they were a believer or not, they will kneel down and declare what we know in our hearts now, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the implication here is, if Jesus our Lord is exalted, those of us who are united to him by faith, one day will be exalted too. Which leads us then to the implication, verse 12. After doing all of this, Jesus says, do you understand what I have done? And I wanted to come back to this because when Jesus says that, he is not just talking to those 12 men in the room. He is talking to the 120 of us in this room. And he's saying, do you understand what I've done? Do you understand the implications it has for me? 
And more importantly, do you understand the implications it has for you? We got to deal with that. We got to think about what Jesus has done. For those of us raised in the church, you know, we become inoculated to the good news sometimes. We've heard it. Oh, I don't need to hear it again. Go back to it. And think about what Christ has done. And if you do understand a couple of things, first off, you will be transformed. You're, going to, you're, you're free. And you're going to experience that freedom more and more as you keep on coming back to the gospel of grace and swimming in its riches but secondly, you are going to follow Jesus' lead, which leads us into our second point, the posture of a disciple, verses 12 through 20. As we saw last week, the cross is surely the primary means by which we are saved, the cross of Christ. But we also saw, too, that the cross is the posture or the model for those who are saved in Jesus. Paul says that in Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, and then he goes on to describe what we just studied. And Jesus says the same thing here. Jesus knows that he's about to depart, and before he does, he wants his guys to know two things. He wants to know who he is and what he has come to do for them, but he also wants to show them how they are supposed to follow him after he leaves. Right? So you see two things. There's a lot of stuff, but we're going to focus on two things. First off, Jesus is our model, verses 12 through 15. Bottom line, a lot of people, most people, I think, equate the golden rule with Christianity. Fun fact, the golden rule had its source and origin in Greek philosophy. Jesus, of course, does teach a positive version of that in Matthew 7, Luke 6. However you want to be treated, then treat other people that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's extremely important. That's the ethic of Christians, right? But I think looking at chapter 13 of John's gospel, the thing that most equates to Christianity is the servant's towel. And I think that's right, because really the key issue for us as Christians is not how Barton wants to be treated and therefore I'm going to treat you guys how I want to be treated. The issue for Christians is how has Christ treated me? And then that becomes the standard of which we treat one another, especially within the church. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching here. He's teaching them about the salvation found at the cross, but now he's talking about the modeled life of the cross. In fact, I think this is what Peter picked up on much later. Peter, with the help of the Spirit, ended up realizing that the Yahoo says, who said, Jesus, you're never going to wash my feet, ends up writing in his letter in 1 Peter, and I gave you the verse there, uh, chapter 2, 21, and chapter 5, verse 5. Peter says, Jesus left us an example. He did a lot more than that, but still, Jesus left us an example. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, just as Jesus clothed himself with a servant's towel and served and saved us. The apostle Peter, now having the spirit and understanding such things, says, as Christians, we are to clothe ourselves with humility and love and serve one another. Peter is basically saying in his letters, listen, guys, Jesus wrote the playbook of what it means to be truly human. So read it. Read his life and follow him. Peter says the same thing. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2.5. They're, they're saying this is the model for true humanity. It's the life of Jesus. He is our model. Now, one little thing we got to make sure, in case we're wondering, surely there's some sort of limitation to this call. 
you know, to wash other people's feet, which is, you know, an analogy for serving people. Surely there's some sort of limitation to that. Just remember, Jesus served Judas. And we'll talk more about Judas in a bit, but we just, we've already seen this. I mean, he knew what Judas was going to do. He knew what was in G- Judas's heart, yet he still served him. Which means then, brothers, there is no caveat to the feet that you and I are supposed to clean. There's no exceptions to the people that you and I are called to serve. That, that naturalistic fallen impulse that is in our hearts that says, oh, definitely not him, is drowned out by the love that Jesus has given us. We're called to serve him. We're called to follow him. Now, the main question is, how in the world are we going to do this? Well, obviously, we need the help of the Spirit, the transforming power of the Spirit. He enables us to do such things. But in verses 16 through 20, it also comes from our understanding. We first must understand who Jesus is, which we just covered. But as those in Jesus, we have to remember who we are. This is my summation of what Jesus says in verse 16 and verse 20. Jesus says, truly, truly. Again, that's a way of saying what I'm about to say is extremely important. So listen up, Peter. Truly, truly. If I am the teacher, you are the pupils whom learn from me. And if I am Lord, you are my servants who represent me. So Jesus is teacher and Lord. We are pupils and servants and representatives. The point is, when you drill down into the identity of Jesus, it focuses us. It changes our self-image and our perception of ourself. By knowing who Jesus is, we, we learn who we are. And we learn two things. First off, we learn that we are servants. And not any kind of servant. We are bond servants is what it's uh, in the original language in verse 16. Paul says the same thing. He says, Christians, you are not your own anymore. You never were, but you're certainly not now, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Heidelberg Catechism, my favorite of the catechisms, says this. I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all of my sins. The point is, your job, whatever letters you have in front of your name, whatever your 410B3 or 410K says, whoever your family is, those things don't define you. The word leader does not define you. You might be a leader in your church. But did you know that word leader is not really found in the Bible? Certainly not in the New Testament. You know what word is? Bondservant. And that's what Jesus calls his people. We are his servants. And if we have a share with him, that means we're servants to one another. And brothers, there's such dignity with being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, he says that we are his representatives, verse 20. He will again hit on this in the next section. We'll get right to that. But basically what he's saying, in the way that we love and serve one another, we point other people to the good news of who he is and the gospel. So basically, it's not for altruistic reasons that we serve one another. We serve one another because Jesus Christ served us. And then by serving one another, we point people to him. They smell the aroma of Jesus and they catch a glimpse of the gospel. We are servants and we are his representatives. And as you guys know, who've been following Jesus a lot longer than me, that's not easy business. 
But here's the good news. As counterintuitive as it is, the posture of a servant is what leads to blessing, Jesus says. What blessing? All of the riches of heaven, all of the blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ that he enjoys. Hearing our Father say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Remember in the economy of Jesus, the first is last and the last is the one who wears the crown. And so Jesus says, remember who you are, remember who I am, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will not stand in pride, but you will kneel in humility, willing to do slave-like things for my sake and the sake of my kingdom, which leads us lastly to the new kingdom community in verses 21 through 38. Now, the meat of this point is in uh, 31 through 38, but I do want us to think about the spiritual context, which I think is painted for us in 21 through 30. Notice in verse 21, Jesus says that his spirit is troubled. Why does Jesus say that? Well, on the surface, it's because Judas is there. I mean, it's like awkward city. At this point, Judas knows exactly what he's going to do. Jesus, of course, knows what Jesus is going to do. And so they're just kind of staring at one another. It would have made all of us feel troubled. But it's much better, uh, greater than that. The context here is this spiritual conflict that's being waged. That's what's happening in this upper room. In fact, the entire background for John 13, brothers, is a battle. And it's not just some isolated skirmish. It is a cosmic War that's been being waged for thousands of years, which began in the Garden of Paradise in Genesis chapter 3, when the evil one invaded God's good creation to disrupt and ruin the intimate fellowship that man enjoyed with God and man with men. And of course, on the surface, the devil succeeds. God judges. Man is separated from God on account of their sin. And this world is broken. But remember what God says in Genesis 3.15. He promises to send the Redeemer. He promises to send the seed of the woman who would not only rescue his exiled people from evil and from sin and from darkness, but would also crush the head of the serpent. And what we're to understand is that all of those promises are coming to fruition in this upper room. Just note all of the different chess moves that are being made. <laughs> the evil one slithers in from the darkness, though Jesus knows that he's there. And after he brings about his full influence on Jesus, though Jesus isn't surprised, what we're to understand right here is that the seed and the serpent are squaring up for the final battle. That's what's taking place in this upper room. But the apostle John wants us to know for our encouragement that Jesus Christ is in control of all of it. Even though the dark clouds of the cross are hours away, even though Satan incarnate, the evil one is in this room, Jesus is not some helpless pawn. He knows who he is. He is the son of God. He is the lamb who will take away the sin of the world. He is the seed of the woman and he is marching straight to the cross in order to crush this evil one and to save the likes of you and me. And this is summarized in the fact that Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, he's not talking to Judas. Whatever you're going to do, Satan, do it quickly. Then Satan departed. Astounding stuff in <laughs> John chapter 13. But nevertheless, Jesus is troubled. The unclean one is there. 
But you'll notice that after Jesus casts him out into the darkness, the tone changes. It's as if the weight comes off Jesus' shoulders because he opens up to a degree he hasn't done yet. And just marvelous truth and, and love and grace pour from his lips. I mean, after all, the swine has left the room. So Jesus is casting pearls. And there's three pearls. One, Jesus reveals his glory as the Son of Man. He has said stuff like this before, but now it's hidden differently. We know glory refers to the cross, but that title, Son of Man, is referring to Daniel 7, 9 through 14, verse 27. Here's the summary. The Son of Man ascends triumphantly to the throne of the Ancient of Days, having defeated all of his enemies. And as victor, he shares the spoils of his triumph with the saints of the Most High, you guys. And he has given universal dominion and rules over it without end. That vision that Daniel got was fragments of how God was going to fulfill Genesis 3.15 in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this moment, after he casts Satan out into the darkness, Jesus is delighting himself that all of the prophecies and all of the promises are here that he will glorify the Father, that he himself will be glorified by bearing our sin on the cross. The cross, gentlemen, which is also the irrefutable proof that God loves you, which leads to the second pearl. Jesus gives his new community a new commandment. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. It's partly true that this commandment is not new. It was given in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. But there's another part that is very much is true because Jesus is speaking to his new community. He's speaking to his new people. He's speaking to new Israel. And right here, before he departs, he is saying what our new ethic is going to be, what you and I are going to be like and what we should be like and what we should pursue. And it's love, not worldly love, but love that finds its source in Jesus, the one who fulfilled those commandments in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so this other-centered, Jesus-like sacrificial love, Jesus says, this is going to be who you are, and I'm going to empower you to do it. And by it, the world is going to know that you are mine. Which begs the question, how are we doing with that? You know, Francis Schaeffer, he said the church is to be a loving church in this dying world, but how will the world consider us is the question. Jesus in his authority has given the world a right, the right to judge you and me on the basis of our tangible Jesus love for one another. So if we're honest with ourselves, are we living out this new command that Jesus has given his new people? I think if we're honest, and please be honest, we're a lot like Peter. <laughs> Look at verses, what is it, 36 through 38. How would you describe Peter? One pastor said that he is a weak man who mistakenly believes he is strong. I resemble that. I mean, Peter, he thought he was a leader. He thought that he was doing this thing good. And... Uh, you know, he, figured, he, he thought he had Jesus figured out. He thought he had the gospel figured out. Peter really did love Jesus, but it turns out he really stunk at following Jesus. 
which was supremely highlighted in his denying Jesus, which you and I do every single time we sin, having known Jesus as Peter, choosing sin over Jesus. Guys, we fail all the time. We're, we misunderstand all the time, just like Peter. But John 13 is written for Peter's. That's the good news. Brothers, Jesus came for Peter's. He did not come for people who thought they had it together. He came for Peter's. Jesus disrobed his glory and took the form of a servant for Peter's. Jesus marched to the cross for Peter's. Jesus shed his blood for Peter's. He came for, for Peter's and, and those like him so that one day we might be with him at that marriage feast, the supper of the Lamb on that great day to come. He gives us John 13 for our encouragement. At the end of John's gospel, John 21, um, we're told um, the disciple who Jesus loved, which is John's way of describing himself, so I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that. But John tells us how Peter finally came to realize that he was also a disciple whom Jesus loved. On the shoreline, filled with shame and guilt that he had denied his friend and his Savior, was restored by Jesus. And in that moment, Peter thought to himself, you really do love me. And when he came to trust that and to believe that, his life was transformed forever. Brothers, Jesus came for you. I don't care what you've done. He's come for you because he loves you. You are the disciple that he loves. And when you trust that and rest in it, I promise you, your life will be transformed. And he will use you, a citizen of his new kingdom, whom he calls my own. He will use you in tremendous ways for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just love Tim Keller's summary of the gospel that we are more sinful than we thought imaginable, but in Jesus we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. And so, Lord, I pray that you would hit us with a ton of bricks of the good news of the gospel, that you would flatten us out, that you would fill us with this great news, that we'd be overwhelmed by it, that we would truly rest in it and therefore be compelled to love one another for your sake and your kingdom. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.